Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing the good, the bad, and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who've done some amazing things in policing, and I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works, or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised, as some of the topics can be distressing, and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello folks, welcome to episode 56 of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. I hope you've all enjoyed your summer and uh, aren't feeling too overwhelmed by the prospect of getting back into uh, the world of work after hopefully a nice break. I got back myself yesterday from sunny Crete, absolutely amazing. Cannot recommend it enough, never been to Crete before, Um, definitely going to be going back there again. A really beautiful place, um, lovely people, amazing food. Oh, just God, there's absolutely nothing I could say that is even remotely negative about Crete. Right, anyway, enough of me waxing lyrical about my summer holidays. Uh, On to the podcast. So this week, I'm going to be chatting to Mark Brown, who is a ex-police officer and now a PhD student at the University of Southampton, I believe. And Mark and I uh, had some uh, interaction on LinkedIn, the social media work-related platform that I'm sure many of you are familiar with, if not actually use. And uh, yeah, Mark had some really interesting things to say about policing, uh, which were obviously well informed from his own uh, experience of being a police officer and now looking at it through the more sort of academic lens, I suppose. So really looking forward to that. Uh, Before I speak to Mark, though, just a couple of things I want to touch on from the last uh, week. So um, firstly, I just want to uh, acknowledge uh, sort of the deep um, sadness and it's just unbelievable, really. I just there's no words really to describe it of the uh, the results of the inquest into the death of Simon Cole, um, the ex-chief uh, constable of Leicestershire Police. So the inquest found that Simon had tragically taken his own life a mere 12 days after retiring from his job as the chief constable of Leicestershire. And uh, it was reported on one of the Leicestershire news media that uh, he'd been suffering from anxiety, uh, had not slept for days due to worry about his future and uh, as a result of that, he, he took his own life. Um, yeah, there's there's just nothing, there's just nothing, there's nothing you can say about this that is, uh, that really fully sums up how terrible and what a terrible loss Simon's death 
was to not just obviously to his family and the people around him who loved him but to the wider policing family because he was such an incredible talent in policing much loved by his own staff hugely respected nationally and um someone who really encapsulated and lived the true essence of what I think a great leader should be. So he always put his people first. Uh, he was um, very measured in, in what he did and uh, a really genuinely nice guy to be around. And uh, I met Simon quite a few times over the years. Um, so he used to be a chief superintendent in my old force, the West Midlands. He was just unbelievably young. I think he got promoted to chief superintendent, I believe in his early thirties or something like that. Um, and then he went to Hampshire as a assistant chief constable and was one of the youngest ever assistant chief constables. I think he was still only in his, in his thirties when he, when he was promoted to chief constable, uh, assistant chief constable, a real, a real, star um and uh i met him one of the first times i met him was actually on hms victory uh which is down uh, moored down in in portsmouth and you can i went down there on a police related um event it was a load of i think i was an inspector at the time and um we had a guided tour of the ship which was fascinating and uh, we had a a meal actually in the in the officer's cabin on HMS Victory, which was a, a fantastic experience. And Simon was at that and he was just absolutely charming, as he always was, and uh, great fun and uh, engaging. And, um, and then I met him quite a few times after that over the years at various events and things. Um, so yeah, real, real, real loss to policing. And, and I suppose the other thing I'd say about Simon's death is the fact that he took his own life in a state of very deep, serious anxiety, experiencing a real mental health crisis. And I've been very open about my own experiences of that. You know, I think back to that time, I talk about it in my book, um, when I was going through a very, very difficult time in my life. That was probably about 13, 14 years ago uh, when I was a DI in a public protection unit. Uh, going through a very, very difficult divorce and separation, and um, uh, and at one point I didn't I didn't sleep for four days, f f you know, literally not a wink for four days, and thought I was going mad. And uh, you know, fortunately, I was able to um, disclose that um, to a colleague, and uh, and she um, insisted I went straight to the doctor and got myself sorted out with some medication and. You know, and I do think that there's a very good chance that that probably saved my life, you know, because I was beginning to feel really, really, really desperate, really desperate. And, um, you know, I don't mind admitting that I rang the Samaritans at uh, three, four o'clock one morning when I was in the middle of that period, um, just feeling desperate. So, yeah, I've been there. I know what it's like. And um, I'm just so it makes me so sad to think that, um, you know, Simon... Uh, did what he did and uh, that could have been maybe prevented if he just 
said the right words to the right person at the right time. But judging from the reporting that, that he was obviously very anxious about his future and, and leaving the police. And I just find that so tragic because Simon could have turned his hand to absolutely anything that he chose to do. Um, he had such an unbelievable network of um, friends and colleagues around the country. And, uh, you know, whatever it is he wanted to do, uh, whether it was something, a big corporate job, or whether it, you know, be a landscape gardener, anything, he, he would have he would have made a success of it. You just know he would because he was that sort of person. And and I think, you know, there's a couple of things I'd say about, about this, is that we tend to focus on, on mental health issues in policing very much on people who are kind of working on the coal face. And I don't think we maybe focus enough on, on the challenges being experienced by some of our you know, senior leaders in policing, and um, and and maybe maybe we should be, you know, they're they're expected to care about the mental health of the people who are working for them, but yet who's looking at their mental health and supporting them? Who do they turn to? Because it's probably unbelievably difficult at that level of an organisation, whether it's the police or any other organisation, it's probably incredibly difficult for someone to to admit. Listen, I'm, I'm really struggling here, um, and I'm, uh, and I know that Simon had had periods of ill health before this, so there was a bit of a history, I believe. Um, but but I do think it must be very very hard for someone at that level of an organisation to admit that they're just not coping, and I just find that so sad. Um, and I suppose there's there's something there as well about. How do we prepare people for life outside of policing when that's kind of all that they know? Uh, you know, Simon was a, a very precocious um, talent in policing. And, you know, I don't want to even begin to think that, you know, policing itself might have created this. But is there something there about someone being promoted at a very young age? into a very responsible, high-pressure job. And then they're kind of stuck there for a very, very long time. And I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that question is. Um, is there something there about saying, um, is it fair to put someone into a position of very, uh, a great sort of, a position of seniority that carries great responsibility at a very young age because then they're in that role for a very long time. And I just wonder how fair that is to the individual. But anyway, um, my very, very sincere condolences to his family and to all of those who worked with him. He'll be uh, very much remembered and much loved um, in the minds of all of those who knew him. Right, we'll get on with the interview with Mark. Morning, Mark. Morning, Ian. All right. I'm good, thank you. Yeah, can't I good. can hear you, but I can't see it. I think I must start every single podcast with that with that uh, comment. Um, you, you got a, you got your camera on? Yeah, I'm just going to. Um... Hey, you see me now? Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I exist. I exist. Look at, look, at you, look at you with your funky baseball cap on and everything. <laughs> 
you look like you're going to jump onto Harley Davidson outside and kind of <laughs> roar off into the sunset. People keep telling me I look a bit like Quint from the Jaws film when I wear this. <laughs> right, yeah. Just don't, uh, just don't scrape your fingernails down any blackboards. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> How are you doing anyway? You all right? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. You, you. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Good. Sorry, I was a bit uh, late joining the meeting there. I was, That's having, right. I was having a bit of a mare with uh, Zoom and. Um, and I was I was effing and jeffing, and then I realised I hadn't plugged my Ethernet cable into my laptop, which is a bit of a schoolboy error, isn't it? So, uh, so I'm, te yeah. I'm terrible with technology, and so <laughs> I'm just glad I'm speaking to you. That's all. Yeah, no, that's good. So, so yeah, so let's just recap on how we happened to have kind of. Um, uh, I was going to say hook it up, but that sounds terrible, doesn't it? it sounds <laughs> as, if on, as if we're on Tinder or something, doesn't it? Yeah. But, uh, so you, so yeah, so I put something on LinkedIn, LinkedIn um, a few weeks ago, didn't I? Which was an article about the state of British policing, and um, and you made a very intelligent and quite lengthy reply to it, which I was pretty impressed with because I think it was really early in the morning and I was like very often I wake up quite early or maybe you know quarter to six six o'clock and I'll just think ah oh, might as well just get up you know and um and then and I put this post on and you came back pretty much straight away thinking oh bloody hell there's another early bird there you know but uh, <laughs> yeah. but you, you were a lot more you were a lot more articulate than I would have been at that time of the day generally so uh so yeah so just uh for the benefit of people listening just sort of just sort of briefly introduce yourself uh and what your background is and what you're doing now okay so, yep so i'm mark brown um my policing um background i started with dorset police back in 2008 um as a police community support officer um and I was in that for about a year or so. And mm -hmm. then the PC applications, police constable applications started um, coming up again. So I had a new window for that. Uh, put myself through that, got through the assessment centre, etc. Um, and then a couple of weeks um, just out from training, um, our, our start date, um, we were put on hold because the government changed uh, right. 2010 with the... Um, with the uh, comprehensive spending review mm -hmm. so i was put on hold for three years um oh god three years yeah, yeah three years um and got very frustrated obviously during that time and had um, you already just out of curiosity did you uh, what were you doing and so you're a piece you were, were you just carrying on as a pcso then yeah yeah okay, at, the, right. at the time although i was looking at other avenues at the time uh, in terms of career progression mm -hmm. after i joined as a pc and one of the one of the areas that really interested me was special branch mm -hmm. um i'd done some work with them through neighborhood policing and stuff yeah. you know um so i had quite a good um relationship with them as good in fact that the actual head of sb at the time mentored me mm -hmm. um and I'd, I'd applied for a couple of roles um in sb but they wanted a degree right. and i didn't have one of those at the time yeah um so we decided that there was two avenues either i wait to get in as a pc and then obviously mm -hmm. you have to progress so at least yeah. three years before you can go go down that route mm -hmm. or um remain as police staff technically and mm -hmm. go in that way but go and get a degree Mm -hmm. So I decided to take a career break for a year and went off and done a master's degree in criminology and criminal psychology right. at Kingston University. Got through that with the intention right. of going back. 
Um, but I didn't in the end. I ended up staying in London um, and I worked in community safety for a social housing provider. Oh, OK. Um, quite similar work to what you would do in neighbourhood policing teams as a PCSO and thing, work with the police yeah. a lot, problem solving, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, unfortunately, so sorry, after... Just to pause you, were you, you were a PCO, PCSO in Dorset, yeah? Yeah. Okay, so what took you to, was it Did it was it the university at Kingston that took you to London then? Yeah, yeah, and then I, okay. I met my, my, my ex-wife there, so right, when, okay. when I was there. Um, so that, that's where sort of personal circumstances sort of right. changed things. Um, but after about, well, not quite two years, I ended up having a heart attack at age Bloody 41. Hell. No way. Yeah, so... Um, oh, shit, was that, that um, if you don't mind me asking, was that a sort of a complete bolt from the blue or did you have that sort of family, there was a bit of a family history there? Because it's very young, isn't it? Yeah, family history. My grandfather, who I never knew, died in 1969 on a deck chair on the Isle of Wight, age 41, of a massive oh, heart attack. Oh, my God. Yeah, so um, they they put it down to stress at the time. Um, the, the, the role that I was doing at the time, unfortunately, because I was ex-police, I got oh. a lot of extra work put on me right it was also the most um you know murders and all sorts of things like that so yeah yeah um you know which was difficult and domestic a lot of domestic violence and things like that so i had twice the caseload of anybody else right, um okay. and yeah and just i think it was just yeah there was a few cases that were just you know mm-hmm difficult to, to deal with kind of thing and they just yeah. put it down to, to stress of the job really so with mm-hmm. that I went back down to Somerset where I'm originally from um, uh-huh. because my dad had just passed away just after that as well um, and I had to look after my mum but I, I, I did what I set out to do I right. actually applied for a role in a uh, special branch right. um, via Avon and Somerset Police but it was going to be based in Dorset again which was mm-hmm. great Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I went in as a prevent officer for a couple of years. Right. Okay. Interesting. Across the south yeah. southwest network there, which right. was a good experience. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was yeah. a lot of travelling. Um, and then my mum passed away, and then um, I decided to leave the role, leave policing. Yeah. Um, I wasn't. I wasn't too enamoured with the um, with with the supervision that I had at the time. So that kind of. Uh, uh, push push things a bit That's so a fairly, and then uh, fairly common yeah. theme unfortunately in policing yeah and then uh, lo and behold one of my lecturers from my master's degree said to me he said you've got the potential to do a PhD do you want do you want to I'll supervise you do you want to do a PhD uh-huh. and I said well I've been thinking about it ever since I did my master's degree but obviously you know you have to go out and earn money kind of thing so yeah yeah um yeah so after a year or so, because I was doing my parents' house up, um, I decided to do a PhD. It got delayed because of COVID. And then, hey, presto, I'm now um, doing my PhD with Southampton, but I'm also doing part-time lecturing um, on police uh, module, policing modules there as well. So, Right, okay. So that's ideal, isn't it, really? So yeah. you're, you're able to get provide, you know, make an income uh, as well as study. So. So yeah, it's a big undertaking, isn't it, to do a to do a PhD in, in anything, isn't it? So what what is your what is your PhD? What is your sort of focus for that? Um, it's basically the, the, covering the last decade or so, where we since two thousand and ten, really. Um, although the starting point is nineteen sixty four, but that 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 comes into effect when I'm looking at the hypothetical model I've got for changing policing in England and Wales. Right. Okay. In a so, in a G- 
yeah because you just you described that in your your linkedin post and you um yeah so, so yeah so so really the focus is as around the changes in policing and you know is it is it around uh that, that kind of loss of resources and the political interference and all of that kind of stuff yeah yeah so it's, it's i mean it's it's given me quite a lot of material obviously the last 12 12 13 years um yeah. to where we are at the moment and obviously it's it could it could change a lot again in the immediate future as well um, yeah. with the change of government yesterday so That's yeah it's right. going to be an interesting time so yeah. yeah so we start from the historical element of the 1964 police act uh-huh. um where they they dropped down from i think it was about 100 nearly 140 police uh, forces in the country um, down to the 43 model that we've got today mm-hmm. um, and it took 10 years obviously before that 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 came into effect um, and we've been we've been we've been sticking to that same model yeah, yeah. throughout changes of government and, and kind of things like that until yeah. we got to 2010 yeah um, you know so what, and, so what I'd be keen to do is um, if we sort of break this down then into sort of I don't know I suppose three parts in my head so be interesting to get your thoughts uh, and reflections on the police organization you know when you were actually part of it um just as sort of a bit of a walk down memory lane um and you know some of the issues that you were identifying uh then yeah, excuse me I'm, I'm drinking a cup of coffee here and I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh and then Second, secondly, be interesting to get your thoughts on, um, you know, on your academic side of things in terms of, you know, where you think it's gone wrong. Because I mean, I know what I think, um, and just you know, get your sort of general thoughts on, on the last sort of ten to twelve years from a sort of more of an academic point of view. And then, and then the third bit, I suppose, in my head is the change of government uh, that we've had in the last sort of. You know, forty-eight hours really, um, yeah. because again, that that from my, I don't want to sort of no spoiler alerts, but I'm really worried about that. Um, I'm really worried, uh, given some of the things that they're saying, um, and how that's going to play out for policing. So, you happy with that? Yeah, yeah, happy with that. Right. Yeah, definitely. Right. So, so yeah, so your experience in in the police organisation, because it doesn't really matter. You know, in my head, it doesn't really matter whether you're a PCSO, whether you were. a uniform officer whether you're a detective you know I think when you're in the in the police as an organization you're in a position to really um see what's going on aren't you so yeah what, what were your kind of observations as being in the police um when I started in 2008 it seems that although although you know sort of your own force would change its policy every now and again depending on what what comes down from from the top um, and then what comes from the center in terms of the government and everything there was some there was some tinkering going on and things like that and things changed but we seem to have we seem to have enough people to do what we needed to do if you know what i mean mm-hmm. um especially around things like neighborhood policing teams which is obviously what i was on um and it allowed response officers and, and the rest of the, the network to, to, to be able to focus on what they were doing. We could focus on what we were doing. And then 2010, it, it, it changed, really. Um, there was still... 
I would say that the the effects didn't happen for about another two years, and that was only down to the Olympics, I think. Mm. Um, and I I got con- I got concerned when 2011 happened with the riots mm. because I thought if they if they're going to go down this route of um, austerity and things, and we're we're told by a chief superintendent who walks in um, first day from another force that he'd just been appointed by our chief constable and said, I've got some bad news and I've got some really bad news. I, mm. Sorry, I've got some good news and I've got some really bad news. And he said, which one do you want first? And he said, I'll give you the good news first. You're all doing a really good job. He said, but the really bad news is there won't be so many of you doing it in the future. This police station you're standing in will be closed down um, and we're going to have to do a lot more with a lot less. Mm. Um and we all looked at each other and thought, really? And was he addressing solely PCSOs at that point, or was he no? It was sort of officers response well? officers and everything as well. Yeah, everybody that was in our station at the time, um, which wasn't the biggest station in the world, but everybody, you know, twenty people in there, all looking at each other, thinking, "Well, hang on a minute, yeah, how, how bad is that going to be?" Kind of thing. And he said, mm-hmm. "Well, I can't tell you at the moment because obviously it's not happened yet, but just." prepare yourself for for the worst kind of thing um so of course and then i get get contacted by hr saying sorry you were due to start in march but um now we're gonna have to put you on hold um you still got your place mm-hmm. um and i found that after after the Olympics, that's when things really started to go downhill because in yeah. Dorset, we had an Olympic site, which was mm-hmm. the sailing um, stuff. It was fantastic. We had mutual aid from other forces coming in. There were so many resources put into it. And you thought, you know, this is this is really what policing should be, you know, kind of yeah. thing. If we, yeah. if we had this all the time. And of course, that disappeared. And I think maybe that, maybe when that disappeared and with austerity, properly yeah. kicking in after like a, that it was like a double whammy yeah it was a real damn double whammy at the time um you know it, it was <laughs> it was uh it was it was difficult and that's why i decided to to basically go off on a different path mm-hmm. because i knew that especially if you're um working in counter-terrorism for example that's going to get funded Whereas I knew that response and neighbourhood police teams and things like yeah. that were all going to get stripped right back. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so. yeah well, that's kind of a, a kind of um, similar to, to my observations because, you know, when the, the Cameron uh, coalition government came in in 2010, um, we obviously got that sort of bad news that things were going to have to change. And I think many of us were sort of, a little bit in denial because we were thinking, well, yeah. I don't, I don't really know what that means. You know, it's sort of, um, and, and, I, and you're absolutely right. And then we had the Olympics 2012 and, you know, and, and, uh, and I was trying to think, what was I, what was I doing around that time? So I was actually part, I was actually in the CT uh, world at that time. So the CT world was, was, and still is uh, protected from a lot of that stuff. And that's, you know, I've, I've been quite uh, clear in, in some of the things I've said previously that I think the CT world has sat on its hands and been quite happy to, 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 to watch the rest of the service floundering over the last 10 years or so uh, and has not played nicely with the rest of the service. And, and I know the politics around that. It's not just as simple as, as shifting resources from, from the CT world out into 
sort of homicide teams um, uh, because there's some politics there. And I know that the security service, MI5, um, would be very, very unhappy with uh, CT officers, um, you know, going to support their colleagues in other departments. But certainly, uh, yeah, again, around that time of the Olympics, uh, it was a cash-rich, uh, it was an artificially cash-rich mm. period, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, so there wasn't the same sense that, uh, you know, the, the service was in real trouble. Uh, but then I remember, I remember then going back to mainstream policing again in about 2013-14. And oh my God, what a difference, you know, everything yeah. just felt, everyone was just running around with their, their bloody hair on fire. There just wasn't enough people. And it was, and then that feed, that that then continued sort of year on year on year it just got worse and worse and worse you know so yeah but you're absolutely right that uh, that that olympic period did sort of cushion the blow a little bit didn't it yeah yeah it did yeah yeah it's um it, it certainly it's certainly felt like there was a a, a like i said a, a kind of a, a crescendo to everything mm-hmm. that was going to be coming next if you know what i mean like yeah. Yeah. so i mean i i left when I went on my career break, it was 2014, hmm. um, or start, sorry, the end of 2013 it was, when I went off to go and do my degree. When I came back and worked in CT in 2016 to 2018, it was, um, like you say, I came back and the 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 teams, neighbourhood policing teams that I used to always, you know, be involved with and, um, you know, you knew you knew every different team around the whole county. I mean, it's not the biggest county in in, in the world, um, and and response as well. And I was thinking, where's everybody gone? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because you you would have to liaise with people well, and things. Well, like particularly PCSO was PCSO yeah. fund, funding basically ran out, didn't it? And yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it, you know. what what didn't help as well was it was ring fenced um, mm. through through local government because um, they obviously are our wages would come through the local council mm. through the county council um and then once that ring fenced um funding had gone then it was carte blanche then about what the the chief constable and their pcc decided as well i mean uh, and that was another thing as well was trying to get used to having these police and crime commissioners i mean the, in the early days we didn't really know what they were going to be doing really um mm. And and we had a we had an independent in Dorset right up until the, the last election. Right. Um, Who was that? And it was um, Martin Underhill. Oh yes, he was ex police officer, wasn't he? He was. He was Sussex Police, and he was the SIO um, for the uh, Sarah Payne murder. Oh yeah. So um, he kind of lived off the back of that a little bit. Mm. Um, and there was there was a little bit of tension because he was a boating he was a boating man, right. um, and he was he came in with this mandate of I'm going to solve all the marine crime that's going on around the Dorset coast, and nothing else really mattered. Kind I of know, thing. And that's the thought. whole and that's the whole point, isn't it? That's why I think police and crime commissioners. One of the reasons, there's many reasons in my head, but one of the reasons why there's such a bad idea, because as if the police organisation wasn't fragmented enough across 43 different forces in England and Wales, then you then had this new layer of fragmentation at a more strategic level where 
every individual, every PCC and their teams of advisors would have their own view as to what was important and what wasn't. So really the poor old cops were just running around getting pulled from pillar to post. Um, you know, the home office say this, PCC says that, the chief constable then, you've got another letter, you might have a chief constable who's got a completely different view altogether. So yeah, yeah, it's a bloody mess, isn't it? Yeah, it was. It, it it did start turning into a bit of a mess, and it was like, well, what are we prioritizing? Um, and who and who who ultimately are we prioritizing X, Y, and Z for? Mm, mm. And I found that, like you said, that that kind of trio, um, mm. you know, it, it it was it was kind of like we well, are doing things for them, but we're not doing things for the public anymore. You know, I, the the first four years of my police service before PCCs came in in 2012, so from 2008, was was very much down to we would ask the public what are the priorities in your area and things like that. I found in 2012, once the PCC came in, that disappeared. Mm. I don't know what it was like for other police forces, but I know from my experience in Dorset, we stopped asking the public yeah. what was the priority in your area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and and and, well, you, well, and if yeah. you don't ask, if you don't ask the question, then you don't have to. You have to do anything about it, do you? you know. Yeah, but I found, but I found that like a contradiction because the PCCs came in to add another layer of accountability. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it actually got <laughs> stripped back. Yeah, I know, I know. It's very, very, very strange. Um, so, so yeah, so so obviously there was the um period of you know growing austerity and the impact that that had on frontline uh, resources um so i take it then the fact that you'd been put on hold basically meant that you just thought i oh, saw this for game soldiers i'm just going to kind of basically do my own thing really yeah yeah i mean I, I was quite happy at the very beginning if i got in in 2010 to have done my probation got some experience under my belt and then diversified my career if I could, um, okay. you know, but uh, yeah. So I had to, I had to think, I think around, around it a, a bit more after that. And and I thought, no, I'll just, I'll, I'll do my own thing. Mm -hmm. You can't, it's kind of like, it wasn't naivety or anything. It was just, uh, I'd, I'd never kind of been in that situation before where I had mm -hmm. to kind of make decisions about, um, you know, where am I going to go with this job? You know, um, mm -hmm. there's opportunities, mm -hmm. obviously, yeah. um, but where am I going to go with this ultimately? And and do I take my own route or do I just get funneled in like the rest of everybody does kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah so, so I'm glad, so, glad I took that route. So in terms of your moving into sort of academic side of things then, um, I'm just really interested in, uh, you know, your kind of take on things because you've got the you've got the benefit, I suppose, of having actually been in the organisation, you know, for a reasonable period of time in, in different roles as well. Because an awful lot of people who who do uh, academic qualifications, particularly at PhD level, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I don't think that many of them have actually been in the police and uh so a lot of it is just very much uh theoretical isn't it yeah whereas, you, whereas you've uh, i used the expression all a bit when i was when i was chatting to uh, jason roach who's a professor of of um psychology from um 
Huddersfield University in one of the previous episodes, I made the mistake of using the expression, it's purely academic. And he was like, you <laughs> <laughs> really told me off for that. He says, I get sick of people saying this. So basically what you're saying is you're just trashing my entire profession, you know, when you use, <laughs> when you use expressions like that, you know. But um, so, so um, what is, is there, has your PhD got a title, so to speak? I just need to get, just need to sort of like narrow it down into what is your f- absolute focus really? So it's, it's in, in, well, the, the actual title has changed actually, but it's, it's policing in, um, in crisis. Um, and, and, and how, how can we restore local policing um, as the kind of like the, the fundamental um, starting point of policing? Right. So yes, yeah, so, so it's policing crisis and it includes a hypothetical model of restructuring to be able to factor in where we Brilliant. start from local policing. Brilliant. Okay. So in no particular order, um, this is, you know, I'm, I'm not expecting you, I don't want to treat this like a, an exam question. I just, I'm just, it's a, it's a chat, isn't it? Um, yeah. In no particular order, where, where, where do you think it's gone wrong? And if, if it is, and I, and I agree that it's in crisis, I think and it, it, only the most kind of blind, blindly, um, you know, person in denial would 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 think anything other than that at the moment so where do you think things where do you think it's gone wrong and why i i think one of the one of the the main issues that i'm I'm, i focus on is if we starting from 2000 roughly um under under labor obviously policing was it, it was getting increasing funding that equals more police officers. We had the PCSOs were introduced, which was all great, and it was a it was a, a boom time in terms of that. Um, there may have been issues around uh, lots of different legislation being introduced by by Labour at the time, um, which I said, like I said, when I, we first started talking about things would change like every five minutes, but you mm-hmm. kind of adapted because that's that's what policing does. Mm-hmm. But in terms of actual resources and everything. I say that through the two thousands, we had this, we, we had this, this natural growth. If mm-hmm. you imagine that we've got a population that's going to grow, so if the population grows, then crime ultimately will will increase in terms of volume. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of a sudden, we get this austerity comes in when the change of government, and we've gone from boom literally to bust. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it was. It was it was inconceivable at the time because it was like, well, why would you, why would you reduce your policing capacity? Mm. And then you get the 2011 riots, and you think that's going to change their mind. Surely it's going to change their minds. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't. And yeah. you think, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's and a I really, think... uh, that's a really interesting point. And probably when we come on to talk about change of government in the last 48 hours you know we can talk about 2011 riots and what that might look like you know moving forward but um yeah i definitely i definitely think uh there was a couple of things you said in your linkedin messages to me which i find really interesting which that you felt that this was all part of a neoliberalist ideological um attack on policing not just policing actually on 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 the public sector generally 
Um, yeah. So what did you what do you actually just to dive into that for a minute? Um, what did you actually mean by that? I mean, <laughs> the, the, it. If you look back at when David Cameron became the leader of the Conservative Party, he obviously wasn't prime minister at the time. He did a speech where he said that we need to reform policing because it's the last unreformed public service. We need to do we need to look at doing X, Y and Z. We need to look at having commissioners like an American style um, and those things. And you obviously then start getting think tanks. Mm who are backed who are tory backed like policy exchange at the time mm. they're commissioned to write a report about how much is policing costing us and is it um efficient and, and value for money and they're saying mm. no it's not um it needs to be it needs to be reduced in terms of the public purse they need to be uh, a lot more efficient in terms of being able to do that more with less um and and also that privatization and pluralizing of policing should be um incorporated into that so why don't we privatize certain parts of policing the back office and things like that and you saw that around that time just before the the government changed um or around about the time the government changed you look you saw chief constables starting to take on privatized uh contracts mm. Aben and somerset was a classic example where they were told that they should amalgamate their back office functions on a uh it platform that's shared with lo- with the county council and the local councils 200 odd million pounds it cost and it was an absolute disaster and it, the contract got cancelled in the end after about three or four years because it was so bad so there was that that line of thinking from the conservatives was neoliberalism is we want to we want to reduce the state. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing now where people are starting to talk about this new Liz Trust government is going to be a, a small. Uh, I think it's is it small government or 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 smaller government kind of thing. So in other words, yeah. we'll we'll let it's like with Margaret Thatcher when she privatized a lot of public services in yeah. the 1980s. We're going to reduce that level. So and yeah. policing, if you think about it, is quite a tasty um option for the private sector yeah. in terms yeah. of private policing contracts and things yeah. like that that were spoken about. So yeah. Yeah. and it just felt that under a neoliberal government you you're you're you'll break the service so much mm. that there's yeah. no alternative but to to yeah. put it into privatization yeah. or certainly reduce it and then kind of break it up into bits yeah. a bit like people feel like the nhs could end up going so, so it kind of sits on a precipice really yeah so i'm just looking at the definition of neoliberalism on wikipedia here so um I'll just read this out, just a short paragraph. A prominent factor in the rise of conservative and libertarian organisations, political parties and think tanks, and predominantly advocated by them. It is generally associated with policies of economic liberalisation, including privatisation, deregulation, globalisation, free trade, monetarism, austerity, and reductions in government spending in order to increase the role of the private sector in the economy and society. So, yeah, I mean... I hadn't really given that argument 
very much thought if i'm honest and i really really wish i had um dived into that a bit more in my book um because i think you're absolutely bang on and we can see this playing out in front of our eyes now can't we we can yeah. see we can see the uh the impact of the, of that sort of ideology playing out across not just policing but across criminal justice uh you look at um the um funding um crisis in prisons in uh crime prosecution service in uh you know i was going to say healthcare there but then i also read something at the weekend that sort of suggested that it, it there seems to be the amount of money that the NHS seems to be getting seems to be almost inversely proportionate to the performance of the organisation. And I'm not quite sure um, why that is. In other words, the amount, the more money you pump into the NHS, the worse it seems to get. Now, yeah. I'm, I'm not quite sure if I've got that right. But from what I read the other day, I was thinking, hold on here. We, we're pouring money into the NHS. So, so why is it why i mean i don't want to go down a rabbit hole on the nhs because I, i'm not qualified to talk about the nhs at all i'm qualified to talk about policing and criminal justice but the point is that there is there does seem to be this very very deliberate strategy at the highest level of this tory government to wreck things um either intentionally or it's like a, you can talk about sins of omission and sins of commission, can't you? But by yeah. a combination of sins of commission and sins of omission, they are quite consciously wrecking things, I think, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, because <clears throat> it, it, it's, it's, they also kind of have this infatuation with the way that things are done in America as well, mm. because... <sighs> The, the the whole government system in America is very much focused on just Washington and kind of a, 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 an overseer of things. Hmm. Whereas when you break things down into the into states and stuff, this you know fundamentally on on policing here, you have all these police departments in America. They're not centrally funded by the American hmm. government. They they don't have a funding formula like we do in this country, where the Home Office will give a grant to uh, X, Y, and Z police forces. Um, there's obviously local taxation as well through uh, through council tax precepts that go via the PCC for for budgeting as well. But there's this kind of thing that I think that the although police forces in America aren't privatized in the truest sense, they are really because unless yeah. the people that live in the, the town where your local police department covers you um they don't they don't it's all raised by local taxation there's no there's no government backing you know yeah. joe biden doesn't say right i'm going to give new york x y and z amount los angeles etc um, as the biggest police forces over there so i think going back to cameron's speech back in 2006 2007 when he was talking things up you know that that was where the neoliberal ideology was really starting to kick in and it's like well you know we can still have policing Mm. but not in the truest sense that we've, we've had it for nearly 200 years now. It, it, it's got to, it's got to go by the wayside because it costs too much. And like I said, when you get uh, think tanks coming up with policy papers saying 
the cost of the cops, basically, the more money we've pumped in, uh, you know, through the Labour government, mm. it's not showing any any reduction in crime. It's not showing this. It's not. There's no. There's no. And like you were saying about the NHS, the more money they were saying, the more money you pump in, the worse it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't personally, I don't get that because, like yeah. I said, when I joined in 2008, we were we were incrementally um, investing in policing, and we were mm. getting there. Yeah. yeah, and then all of a sudden it was t- it was torn up. So this boom and bust situation. Yeah. yeah, we then see two years ago, three years ago, sorry, when Johnson got in, he realizes from a populist position, oh, we've cut the police a bit too much, so we're going to reinvest with these extra officers that they talk about. They're not extras; they're just replacements, just to try and get some parity on 2010. Hmm. Um. And then I'm thinking, right, that's good. Twenty thousand uplift, get some parity back, and then what? Mm. It's just a short-term gain for populism. That's that's yeah. all it was. Yeah, well, it's not replacing all of the other infrastructure. Um, yeah, of course, not. Uh, around it, it's not replacing the twenty old, twenty-five thousand old police staff and pieces yeah. of those. Um, so yes, there's an interesting. Um, uh, organization that he's quite he's quite active on linkedin david mckelvey he's the founder and ceo of my look bobby limited and and i don't know how familiar you you are with them um but they are an unambiguously um privatized uh, alternative police service i suppose um and they are their officers or their staff probably better to call them the staff um, patrol the streets um, in what broadly looks like police uniforms, albeit they're subtly different. And and David is very very active on LinkedIn in terms of um, trumpeting the successes of his people in terms of catching criminals in in the act and um, you know detaining them. I suppose on any person powers of arrests. And um, a really good example of someone who has seen the opportunity there because of the growing sense of frustration and dissatisfaction in mainstream policing and has stepped in in a, you know, and I'd like to, I don't really understand the business model, if I'm honest, um, but I I suspect they will be funded by a combination of, um, you know, business communities, um yeah wealthy individuals um so 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 effectively you're you know and and i'd like david to, if, if i'm getting this wrong i'd like david to come on and chat to me and tell and put me right on this i have actually invited and come on the podcast i think twice um and i'm i'm getting as, as my wife would say a good ignoring um but david if you listen to this one of your people listen come on the podcast and tell me about your business model because i'm interested in it um I'm not saying it's all bad at all. I think they're clearly doing a lot of very good things, but they're doing very good things for, and this is the point, for people who can afford it. Yeah. You know, and and that, to my mind, all day all day long is wrong, and all you're doing is dividing um, society into those uh, servicing, providing a service to those who can afford it. Um, yeah. And you're ignoring you know, the communities that 
that can't. So, David, if you're listening to this and you want to come back at me at like that, then come on and we'll have a talk about it. But uh, anyway, getting back to the point, um, this kind of neoliberalist ideological agenda, which we're now seeing playing out. Um, where where do you see where do you see um, things going with the change in government? Because I'm just curious where where your head is with all of that. I think I've I've kind of I kind of come from the perspective that you've just when we were talking about this boom and bust thing um just a minute ago you know from from two, the 2000s 2010s and now we're going into 2020s and i just see that uplift is going to be used as an excuse we gave you what you asked for um but now we're going to do things our way if you know what i mean um and i'm i'm quite apprehensive as well about the way that I think under Pretty Patel as well, the Home Office has become extremely disjointed, fractious, low morale. Mm. Um, and although there's a new Home Secretary coming in, she seems she seems to have quite quite a, a more far right mm. um, kind of line of thinking. Mm. Um, and I'm and I'm concerned that they're going to start putting all these targets in and policing won't be able to meet them. Yeah. And I think that that is another thing like we were just discussing now about how a service is broken down. You know, if the police can't hit these targets, they're going to say, right, well, we're going to take it out of your hands. You're obviously not doing um, what we've asked you to do. Yeah. And there's going to be repercussions. Now those repercussions could be, yeah, we'll 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 do more austerity, really, and I think the police service is going to be held to ransom in the next couple of years. It depends when the next general election is. Um, but for me, I think the next the next two years, if if this new government is in place, I think that there's going to be um, a renewal of of breaking the service. Yeah, um, I don't think they're going to be supportive of, of it. Um, and then we're back to square one then again about where where policing goes in the future. Is it going to be broken up and privatised or semi-privatised? And like you said, the, the only people who will benefit from that are the rich and those who have. Yeah. And yeah. that will be exacerbated because those that are rich and those that have can invest mm in policing as a business yeah. like we've seen in america with the prison service where just, they profit I, from from can, prisons can i just draw people's attention to a really interesting thread on twitter that i um looked at this morning and it's uh, it's from richard murphy um richard j murphy at richard j murphy is his twitter handle and he he is a professor of accounting practice at sheffield university political economist and co-founder of the Green New Deal. And he put a very long thread on today, um, which uh, I'll just get the time. Uh, it, was, it was about nine, this was about eight o'clock this morning. And there's about six or seven messages uh, in, his, in his thread um, going through 
how he sees this new government playing out. And, and it makes for very, very sobering reading indeed. Um, and and he, he uses the, the neoliberal um, argument, um, you know, frequently through, throughout that. So I'd really encourage people to have a look at what Richard Murphy's saying. And, um, and he more or less ag kind of agrees with everything you've just said there. Uh, and one of the threads is these people hate government. They assume that whatever government does can be better done by markets. They don't believe in the NHS. They think pension and care provision should be provided privately. They, they hate taxes and now they're at the heart of government. And, um, and he talks about Suella Braverman, the new Home Secretary, um, in very, very uncomplimentary terms as, a, you know, as basically a far right, uh, not far right, but a right wing sort of ideologue. Um, and uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, <laughs> here we go, this is quite interesting. Um, her first commitment as Prime Minister in her speech outside number 10 was to build more roads. This was a rebuke to the Green Lobby, who and that took, that took some beating. She, but she did manage to beat it, however, by appointing Jacob Rees-Mogg to be Business Secretary with responsibility for the environment. The man is a climate change denier. It is almost impossible to imagine a worse appointment. So um, anyone, I think, who thought this is a, quite a political podcast, isn't it? Now it's become, but I don't, I think, I think we're in dangerous. I think, I think I'm okay with that because I think we're in really, really dangerous times here. Yeah. Um, and anyone who thought that this new prime minister was going to come in and try and build consensus and rebuild the, um, you know, to bring her own party back together again, that is absolutely not what she has in mind, bearing, looking at her cabinet appointees who are very much Boris, you know, it's more of the same, isn't it? Um, and I suppose getting back to the whole point about policing, what does this mean for policing? My great fear here is that the police, not only are the police going to be further forced into, um, you know, more budget cuts, more austerity, um, as a as a means of uh, Richard Murphy used an expression. He used he used part of the neoliberalist mindset is to indulge in what they describe as sort of um, creative destruction. This notion of creative destruction is that you break something utterly. You don't actually really care what happens when you break it. Because out of the out of that destruction, you you get something new, and Liz Truss has made it very clear that that is very much part of her thinking. It's to go in and destroy things because she just doesn't like, you know, uh, what they currently look like. So better to go in and just just trash it all, and and it's kind of hoping, isn't it, that what comes out of it, like a phoenix from the flames, is is going to be better. But it's an unbelievably high risk strategy for policing, isn't it? Yeah. And it, it's ironic, actually, that you say that, um, you know, the, the way that she she's thinking there, because she uh, co-authored a report through the Reform Think Tank, which she was uh, deputy director of at the time back in uh, 2009, it was just before Cameron got in. And it was entitled A New Force. 
And it was all about breaking the police forces up um, because uh, Labour had been looking at uh, regionising or nationalising the police service. And she was obviously rebutting that um, because that's just, you know, the, the political schema of things in terms of, well, whatever you're doing, we're going to do the complete opposite. Mm. But yeah, but it, it, it's ironic that her, it was entitled A New Force. Um, and like you said about this whole breaking things down, breaking it beyond uh, repair. Yeah, repair. Um, mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and 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 then divvying it up um, between you know the the kind of rich vultures of of the world um, yeah. in terms of well, we we can offer contracts for this, we can do this, yeah. we can do that yeah. for a profit. Yeah. Well, I I use the analogy in my book of um, the Labour government, I used the analogy of a train set in my, in my book. I, I described how under Labour, um, they created a policing train set that but tried to micromanage every, um, uh, the, the size and shape and color of every single part of the train set. They micromanaged, you know, what the, they created a, a, a timetable that just didn't kind of make sense to anybody. Um, they were control freaks when it came to policing. But then when the Tories came in, they literally came in with a size 11 hobnail boots and just smashed the train set to pieces. You know? yeah. So in, term, in terms of um, going back to that sort of 2011 period um, with the, the riots. So this is another thing I'm really, I'm really worried about is that through you know, many years of underfunding the police, as well as some real own goals, I think, in policing, i.e. allowing themselves to get drawn into all sorts of areas of life that they shouldn't be in. And now it's extremely difficult for them to extricate themselves from those yeah. areas of life, such as mental health and all of these other... They, they, so we've got fewer people doing way more than they ever used to do and a very inexperienced police workforce. My fear with this government is that um, they're sowing the seeds for mass public disobedience, civil disobedience and public disorder um, through cost of living crisis, through uh, a general sense that public, se public services just aren't working, that we've got a very divided society now between those the haves and the have nots um so so you know what are your thoughts on that do you think do you think that's that's a, i'm gonna ask it that's a very loaded question isn't it i mean do you do you see that as a risk i'm i'm very much so i think if 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 anything you saw you saw the seeds of that coming back um during covid with the protests that were going on in london and things like that um especially but we obviously there's protests in other places and things that was coming off the back of the defund the police movement which started in america after george floyd's murder as well and i think we saw the seeds there of of, of where public disobedience okay they may they may have a cause um that they're made in their their colors too um but yeah definitely and and i think it was almost like it was testing the waters mm. it was testing the police service mm. to see how that they could, could react and we saw with things like in bristol and things like that where things got yeah. you know 
quite well out of hand and everything. Yeah. The trouble is, is that compared to 2011, which was obviously off the back of the, the, the Mark Duggan shooting, that was it was kind of like a single issue situation there. Yeah. And then it kind of it escalated and things like that, and it mm. sort of bloomed out of control. But I think very much now, even 10 years later, it's gotten very, very political as well. Mm-hmm. And the police have always supposed to be apolitical. Um, and I think they've, there's a, like you said, about own goals and things. And I think the police have fallen into that trap where they're trying to appease everybody but they're not but they're not appeasing anybody in effect mm, mm. and they are the ones that are seen now as they've they protected the government mm. yeah. f- uh, during covid with the lockdowns and things yeah, yeah whether they have or not is is up for de- for debate but, but, but a lot that's of people the perception isn't it it's the perception and it's very very dangerous because the police have stood there on the streets in between mm. the protesters and whatever they you know they they're protesting about and they literally are becoming um, the default target. Yeah, we yeah. can't. You know, the, the people people wouldn't be able to get to the prime minister, or it'd be very very unlikely to to to, to do anything themselves. But they just the police are just going to be used as a yeah. a kind of a, a wall, really, yeah, for everybody yeah. to throw things at. It. Yeah. Kind of like the police service is going to end up being put in stocks, you know, like a medieval town yeah. square, and and yeah. and everything's going to be thrown at them. Um, so whether the, they, sorry, go on. Yes, yeah, so whether they can handle it or not, you mm. see people talking on Twitter about it. Can, can we handle a 2011 style riot with what we've got now compared to but what we had back then? Obviously, pre the Olympics as well. Um, and a lot of people are saying, no, no, we don't. Definitely not. Definitely not. Yeah. You, you just know that you don't need, I don't even need to be an expert on, on, on sort of, nah. I, I've got no idea how many level one, level two public order trained officers there are around the country. I don't know what the state of readiness is, all of that kind of stuff, but I just know instinctively that they couldn't do that. Um, yeah. based on the, the numbers of, uh, police officers who are out there, the level of experience that they've got, the fact that, you know, one third of officers now, uniform officers now have got less than three years service, all of that stuff um not not a good situation to be in so i mean we've, so we've, t- we've talked about the i used to hate this expression but i'm gonna i'm gonna use it um we've talked about the um the what and we've talked about the so what but i suppose the, the next thing is the what now isn't it what now you know so i suppose my i suppose my plea to the police service senior people in the police service. I don't know how many of them even listen to this podcast. I'm sure a few of them do, you know. I'd like to get their thoughts on it because the only feedback I ever get is from frontline officers who absolutely love it. But I don't. I get very little feedback from the, probably only a handful of superintendents and above. But I'd be saying uh, my plea, my plea to senior police officers in the country now would be don't fall into this trap. There's a very clear trap that has been set for you here and you're walking into it mm. and and the time it is now time for the org- the service to to come together as one so that's the police federation the superintendent association and npcc as one to stand up to this government and say 
we are, will not be your political, we are not going to be treated as your political pawns. Um, we don't like what's happened to our organization for the last 12 years. We understand that we are public servants, but we are not going to be used as your foot soldiers to try and keep the lid on all of the things that are so obviously going to happen uh, and not, not in a good way uh, with this change of prime minister and the people that she's surrounding herself with because I think um, they need to finally stick up for themselves because there's been precious little sign of that so far. I don't, I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And, um, you know, austerity was, I understand why austerity was difficult for chief officers, especially, um, you know, you can, you can only have as much money as you're given kind of thing and, and the resources and things. But there was, it wasn't, there was a compliance there that had to be there, but, but how compliant did you need to be? And I think, like you say, it was maybe it was maybe it was a little bit of naivety there. I don't know that. Oh, how how long is austerity going to last for? Mm. Is it only going to be two or three years, and then we'll we'll be okay after that? And mm. I think it kind of it went on like that. You know, it just it just it just rolled on, and then like you say, all of a sudden you get to 2019, mm. and like I said, Johnson comes in and says, "Oh, we're we're going to." restore parity here we're going to give you the, the money to, to put twenty thousand police officers back in but like i said then you have two two incidents that happen you have mm. george floyd and then there's that defund thing and then you have the covid situation and you found with lockdown at the very beginning the police were thrown in at the deep end obviously policing always gets thrown in at the deep end because that's mm. the very nature of, of what it is mm. got thrown in at the deep end with ill thought out rushed legislation were mm. they laws were they rules how do you interpret them how do you do this how do you do that and you kind of saw like there was a bit of panic there i think from chief uh, officers and, around the and country. Mark, all the while all the while they're getting pissed when on suitcases full of booze and dining street and that's the that's the issue that you know, so the so what they were saying and what they were doing, there was a massive disconnect there, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, you saw, and then you kind of saw the fallout of that, where the police were being targeted. Um, and it's it's not the chiefs; it's the ones that are out on the streets having to mm. enforce the rules and the laws and things. Mm. Um, and I, I I kind of get the impression that, especially with chief officers, is that they don't last long these days. Mm. they're in they're in they're in their seat for sometimes even just two or three years um mm. and i think it's very easy to walk out the other side um as long as you've as long as you've got some kind of legacy to fall back on um in terms of your your period in charge mm. and i just think that there's no there's a lack of continuity mm. in terms of not just continuity for each individual force with its chief officer. But I just think there's a lack of continuity in terms of what you were saying about the Fed, um, the Superintendents Association and chief officers all standing together. Mm. And I think they've kind of, like I said, is it kind of like there's almost like a short termism yeah. in terms well, of. Well, I think if you were cynical, if you were wanted to be really cynical there, I think the Fed and the Superintendents Association have been fairly 
consistent in their messaging in terms of, um, you know, albeit that the Fed's a bit of a toothless tiger, um, the superintendents have, have been a, a little, you know, have been, been quite sort of moderate in terms of their language. They've been quite sort of careful in their use of language. Yeah. Um, but it's been more or less silence from MPCC. And, and I think that's probably because of the kind of mindset of a lot of people who want to be chief officers. They just don't want to rock the boat. They, they, no. they see that as career threatening for them. So, so again, what I'd say to them would be, not only is it time for you to stick up for this government and on behalf of the people of Britain, uh, the, the, the taxpayers of Britain and the, the, the people who need the police service, but it's also time for them to start putting the public and their people before their careers because that's what it feels like and seems like to me yeah and and yeah again i i, I agree that that that's that seems to be the consensus anyway um you know and it's i mean like you just say and then there's even with even with those associations, the Fed Superintendents Association and MPCC, there's a hierarchy there. And like you were saying, that the Fed can the Fed can speak up, can be very outspoken about mm -hmm. things. But how far does it go? Because it has to kind of go up the next rung of the ladder. So if the mm -hmm. Superintendents Association doesn't kind of go on the same lines, mm. it's just going to get watered down. And then if the MPCC are, are almost, you know, completely silent on it and, and mm. complete, not complicit, but compliant and, yeah. and that. Well, they're acquiescing on it. Yeah, yeah, that was the, that was the word I was yeah. trying to find. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that's going to water it down and it's just going to, we're just going to, we're just going to have this continuous cycle of the people that are out on the streets doing the work in, mm. in the police are just going to feel more and more alienated from not only internally but on the external thing as well, where they just feel that you know mm. we we keep seeing these these statistics about public confidence in policing, mm. you know, and and then you get all these these other things that are kind of put under the microscope by the media and things, which doesn't help, um, you know, with the, with the dancing and the rainbow coloured cars and things like that. And yeah. it's well, like... It's what, it's what the right... I mean, I'm no fan of dancing and Macarena and all that nonsense. I've made that clear. But this is a very deliberate skewing of the message by a right-wing press, isn't it? The Daily yeah. Mail, the Daily Express, uh, and those Tory-owned, Tory-supporting... Uh, I mean, the, the the Daily Mail and the Daily Express are, are like are effectively pamphlets for the Tory party. Yeah. Now. They, they make no attempt whatsoever to to even hide that. Um, so. So, yeah, it, the, the, that sort of messaging has been very deliberately skewed, isn't it, by 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 the, the right wing press in order because of the agenda that they want to promote, i.e. the police are doing a terrible job uh, and we need to smash the police up even more than they currently are so yeah i mean i know that some will listen to this and they'll think that's a load of paranoid nonsense but all i'd say is look at the evidence look at the evidence okay this is not something that i'm just plucking out of the air you know all of the evidence points to a very deliberate um and very um sort of insidious um campaign to destroy the, the police service and not just the police service but many other parts of the public yeah. sector.
and, and that's a word that I use quite quite often is insidious, um, you know, because I think, you know, even going back to what I was saying earlier on about when Cameron did these speeches, I think it was Hoxton, um, where he, he, he laid out his ideas for policing in the future and things. That was 2006, 2007. So we're a good 15 years on from there. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a, I think it's a long game for this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's a dangerous precedent to set in terms of break, breaking your police service so badly that they can't handle a a riot. Yeah. Um, you know, the same as whether they... I think they realised possibly that when COVID hit, the NHS had been broken mm. too much and it was like, oh, God, we actually need them right now. Mm, mm, mm. Um and I, I just wonder, would the police service get the same kind of thing? Oh, hang on a bit, we've broken them too much. I know, like I was saying, we we had the uplift um, that came in, but it's it's almost like, I think that was just pure luck. Yeah. Um, you, you know, in terms of starting to, to 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 put the numbers back up, but like you said, that's it's not just a numbers game. Yeah. You've got to look at experience, you know, you've got to look well, at the quality. Eco- and I use the word, I use the word ecosystem a lot. You know, it's an ecosystem. We operate within an ecosystem. Um, and that ecosystem includes other criminal justice partners. It includes um, partners from, um, you know, local authorities and social care and NHS. And, um, and I had to, it nearly killed me to admit it. But when I was speaking to my brother, who's a criminal barrister, um, you know, I said, I never thought I'd, I never thought I'd, you know, hear the day when I felt sorry for criminal barristers, but, <laughs> yeah. but, but I do actually now I do. Because yeah. I, and, and there was an, awa- there was an awakening there for me, the, the sort of scales fell from my eyes a little bit when I was talking to him, I thought, oh, no, we all need each other. We can't, yeah. we cannot, criminal barristers cannot operate properly without the police service and vice versa. Um, and and if you trash that entire system and you've got nothing viable to replace it with, then, yeah. you know, and I use that train set um, analogy again, you know, to flog the, flog the metaphor. So, you know, before you smash something up, make sure you've got something better to replace it with. Yeah. Um, and, and there is nothing better, is there? There's nothing. It wasn't wasn't perfect, and nobody nobody's trying to say it was perfect. But it but it was but it was all right, wasn't it? It was all right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but and, it, and that's not. yeah, and that's that's where I I go back to to my own experiences in the first few years of policing. It wasn't perfect what we had in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, etc. But we were doing okay. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, then it just got. Yeah, the public, just the public got, who pay our wages after all that were generally pretty happy with the police. Levels yeah. of public satisfaction were fairly high. Um, detection and criminal justice outcomes were pretty good. Um, yeah. You know, there was no sense whatsoever, apart from the usual moans and groans that everybody has, you know, in every organisation, there was no sense whatsoever that the organisation was in crisis. None at all. Yeah. Um, uh, all of our partners were operating largely okay, weren't they? Um, yeah. The, the system sort of chugged along fairly well, didn't it? Yeah. Um, I I always remember when I went into a, a, a local um, convenience store on my on my area, just on the outskirts of Paul in Dorset, 
and there was the girl behind the counter and there was a lady that was stood in front of me and I walked in on my PTSO uniform obviously and I, I you know just wanted to check that they were okay everything all right tonight kind of thing um, and this woman this customer woman turned around and she went oh she said Oh, she says, it's nice that we see you around all the time. She said, I've seen you walking around a lot and your colleague and, and things like that. She said, it, it, it does make a difference. She said, but, and this was just after austerity was announced. And she said, but they're going to cut you all, aren't they? And I said, well, we don't know yet. And she said, well, I hope they don't. She said, because to be honest, she said, if we're going to lose, you know, as many police as they're saying and things, she said, the criminals are going to have a field day. She yeah. said, it won't be tomorrow, she said, but in the future, the criminal is going to end up having a field day when they know that there's not enough of you around. She said, and then, you know, where where do, where do we stand as the public? Yeah. How do well, we protect it's ourselves? Well, it's happened, doesn't it? It's happened. Yeah, yeah. and it has happened. It's, so, it's, it's, you know, detection rates of, you know, 5% of total recorded crime. Uh, theft has effectively been de decriminalised in the UK. Uh, yeah. low, lowest rates of sexual offences uh, resolution, you know, in history. It's just a bloody mess, isn't it? Um, yeah. So everything that that lady in the shop said has come true, hasn't it? Yeah, 12 years ago. Just an ordinary member of the public. She wasn't, she didn't have a vested interest or anything like that. She was just, you know. Yeah, interesting. interesting. Yeah. So listen, it's probably not a bad place to, to wrap it up. Um, well, that was an unashamedly political um, conversation, <laughs> wasn't it? But you know what? Sometimes, I mean, I've been... I said, I said in my book at this right at the start that I'm not a political person. I'm not. I've never been remotely interested in politics. But you know what? I, I'm becoming a lot more interested and in, in, uh, I'm, I'm not actively involved in politics. But you know what? I'm, I'm seriously thinking about it because I do realise that unless you're in that world, unless you're playing that game, then you're you're a passenger on the train you're you're a passenger on a on an out of control roller coaster aren't you yeah it's it's, uh, it's almost like you're on a plane where the pilot is you know uh, passed, passed, passed out yeah we're gonna sleep we'll say and, and and one of the passengers has got to get up and try and fly the plane because otherwise you're gonna crash yeah you know and that's yeah. that's that's what it is and i I'm exactly the same as you, Ian. I'm 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 not a political person, never really have been. I haven't voted for a while because mm. I just I'm I'm in the wilderness when it comes to that. Mm. I'm a political refugee in terms of yeah. actually going to a ballot box, let alone exactly. yeah. actually being, you know, active in, in any kind of political stuff. But like I said, from from my work that I'm doing now. I am looking at it obviously a lot more closer, um, you know, and, and things, and, and a lot more vested in in it. Um, yeah. Not only historically, but obviously mm. in the future as well. Because mm. as I'm mm. as I'm progressing with my thesis, you know, uh, yesterday was day one of the new government, and that's mm. going to end up being quite fluid for me, I think, as I progress through. It's very interesting, you know, from a from a narrow a narrow kind of. You know, point of view of you and your PhD, it's a very interesting development, and it's going to be interesting to track that now, isn't it? Um, yeah. And uh, see how that all plays. I, I I know how I think it's going to play out. Um, uh, not, and that's not. You know, I don't want to be all doom and gloom. I really don't. But I, I don't think it's going to. I don't think it's going to um, work out well. I don't. So anyway, listen. Before we get yeah. back into all, you know, before <laughs> get everybody sort of, you know, full of, you know, fear and despondency. Um, it's been really great chatting to you, mate. Really enjoyed it. And um, 
yeah i wish you the very best with your phd and uh you, with, yeah. with your teaching and everything and if you ever need anybody to come and chat to your students or whatever um be very happy to do that yes i should certainly bear you in mind and, and and yeah thank you for having me on i hope i hope i've been coherent in what i'm saying um very coherent know, but, yeah. Uh, yeah but you know <clears throat> just just at the, at the last days people say to me um you know obviously you're doing your phd thesis you're not in the police service anymore and things and 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 why would you kind of be looking at that it's because i care i still yeah. care yeah, you know yeah, yeah. i'm i'm probably never gonna go back into the police service certainly mm. you know in terms of that i might work alongside them if, if i get the chance in the future but yeah i just i just care you know yeah, yeah. Well, exactly I'm, well I'm, me too i'm not in the police anymore but i care very deeply about it and yeah. um yeah, and it's and I do think that uh, yeah, time for time for everybody to wake the fuck up and see yeah. what and see yeah what's, and smell and that see, bloody coffee. See what see what's happening. Let's not be uh, passengers on either control road or coaster. Let's, yeah, let's, let's, let's take take pack take back some control to to use an overused um, Brexit laden analogy, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Listen, Mark, it's been a pleasure, mate. Uh, wish yeah, you well, well and uh, yeah, who knows? I'll I'll put you on the list of people to buy a to buy a beer for. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me on, Ian. It's been it's a, a pleasure. pleasure. Great pleasure. You take care, mate. Bye thanks bye. a lot. Cheers. Bye bye. Bye bye. So there you go. Um, really interesting chat with Mark there. Um, yeah, my my mistake there i thought he'd been a police officer it turned out he'd been police staff pcso and then later working on the prevent side of things so that was my error there apologies um but either way someone who's clearly uh, giving given and giving a great deal of thought to the issues around policing i just thought i'd better go back to that comment that i made about the nhs that there is a sort of perception that money is pouring into it in great in greater and greater amounts of money um, and it feels like the outcomes are getting worse and worse and I suppose I just need to be careful that I don't fall into the trap that I think a lot of right-wing commentators uh, set out for people to make that exact argument as a sort of a justification for privatising all or parts of the NHS which is an institution that we all love very much so I just thought I'd better just fact check myself on that one. Um, so I went to uh, some data sources, which was from the King's Fund, who described themselves as an independent charitable organisation working to improve health and care in England. So the annual budget for the NHS in, I've done a 10 year compare, the annual budget for the NHS in between 2012 and 13, according to their website, was 126 billion pounds. And the budget for 2022-23, so a 10-year period there in difference, um, was 174 billion pounds. So that's a increase of 38% in the fund funding for NHS in England, a 10-year period. So, uh, again, I'm not an expert on healthcare, and I know that 
there'll be people out there maybe who who are who might be listening to what I'm saying thinking you're talking bollocks um, and I acknowledge that it's really really complicated my god the NHS is such an unbelievably complicated such a mammoth organization that does so many different things um, and there are all sorts of factors in the same way that the police have to pick up uh, a lot of societal factors that we've got no control over and we just have to respond to them um, the NHS also likewise has to do do that so you know for example you might be talking about uh, levels of obesity in wider society um, coexisting um, serious health health conditions an aging economy or an aging population rather um, air pollution or all sorts of all sorts of factors uh, which uh, you know the numbers of people the, the population is growing um, so it's not it's not simple I suppose that's what I'm saying it's not simple um, and uh, and I do have a lot of as a as an ex public sector worker I do have a lot of sympathy with uh, colleagues in the NHS who are having to try and um, respond to all of those things in a way that uh, gives best value for money I suppose so yeah there you go right I shall leave you with it see you next week once we had a policeman he was often in our street we used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat but now we never see him it really makes us frown no longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town oh. <laughs>